Thanks for listening to Tea Leaves and wishing our listeners a happy 2020. This episode covers a panel discussion at the Atlantic Council, moderated by Kurt Campbell between leading thinkers on the Indo-Pacific that focuses on India's future role in the region. We hope you enjoy. Thank you very much. Friends, can I bring you back to order? And again, thank you for joining us today at the Atlantic Council. We're going to take you into the present now with the panel that's going to explore where the Indo-Pacific is, India's role in it, and what lessons that we can take from 60 years ago as we head into an incredibly dynamic period today. I'm thrilled to have just a terrific panel, three wonderful people, all who are well-known to you. I'll just take a couple of minutes to introduce. I think you all know Admiral Richardson just left service recently. He was the 31st Chief of Naval Operations, long-term submariner, wonderful person, uh, played a critical role in U.S. thinking about the Indo-Pacific concept. I've known him for many years. Uh, He can tell you a lot of sea stories about uh, uh, Asia, and we look forward to his comments. Uh, Ashley, a dear friend, to my immediate left, if you had to choose one person who is the father of the Indo-Pacific concept, a great strategist, one who has helped us think about the important role that India is playing strategically in the Asia-Pacific, and Alyssa Ayers, uh, who is currently serving as a fellow, senior fellow on the Council on Foreign Relations. I love her book. If we had to uh, talk about a couple of different books, I love Bill's book. I think any of you are looking for a good Christmas book, that's the one to get about Eisenhower. If you think our time is crazy, the 1950s can match that. I urge you to uh, go out and get it. You can get it delivered tomorrow because I just ordered it. Um, Alyssa's book, I would also recommend, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. So wonderful panel. Very grateful for all three of them joining us today. So Adam, I'm going to begin with you. So uh, Rich began by talking about some of the symmetries between the late 1950s and today. If you think about that, that was really the dawn of the Asian miracle, really Uh, dramatic exports begin in this period, growing economies in Japan and Northeast Asia, India awakening, thinking about the world. Bring us 60 years into the future. You just got off active duty. One of your most important roles, both in here in Washington, but in your other assignments was thinking about the Asia-Pacific region. As you look at it, what are the great opportunities and challenges as we go forward? First, let me just say what a, what a delight it is to be back on the panel with you. Ambassador Verma, thank you very much for inviting me here. And uh, you know, most of what I know, I learned from the people on my left and right during my time as CNO. And so I'm really outclassed here, but everybody's so nice about it that it uh, makes it pleasant. Uh, one of the most important relationships that we have is our relationship with India in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I just had a chance to talk to the current chief of naval operations, confirmed that uh, we are you know, full speed ahead and making sure that that relationship remains on a trajectory that uh, continues to strengthen this relationship. I think if you fast forward from uh, the 50s to today, you would see in many ways the fulfillment of uh, a, a dream the economic growth, the, uh, the, de- the democratic growth, the diplomatic growth of that entire region uh, with just economies uh, exploding literally under the framework and the rule set that was put in place at the end of World War II and has really allowed so many of the nations there to flourish. I think your book is so perfectly titled uh, 
because I think that India sees uh, this as a time where they are really coming into their own and are ready to step forward and take a uh, much more of a leadership role there in uh, that region, uh, not only to secure themselves domestically, but to provide, uh, be an exporter of regional security. And we still, we certainly got that sense in the military to military, Navy to Navy uh, relationship that we built, which was you know, very strong to begin with and got you know much stronger, uh, really leveraging off of the, uh, the elements that we have in common, democratic nations, maritime nations, you know, those sorts of uh, fundamental tenets of uh, national security, national power. In terms of challenges, I think China is the great uh, newcomer on the scene, if you will. Uh, and uh, as uh, I'd be interested to see what my fellow panelists think about, you know, the nature of India's response to the uh, Chinese growth into that region, particularly their maritime presence, you know, now through the Strait of Malacca into the Indian Ocean and across as you think about that uh, Belt and Road Initiative manifesting itself, I think that that would be, you know, the the one challenge that we've got to get right. This India-China relationship, and then extending out to, you know, in Japan, the United States, and other major players. Admiral, that's a nice segue. So, Ashley, one of the things that you've written eloquently about is that, of course, the important relationship of the 21st century is between the United States and China, but perhaps the dominant relationship, the one that we really have to keep our eyes on, uh, is the relationship between India and China. Give us your insights about how's that fixed now and how do you expect it to trend over time? Well, thank you, Kurt. Let me start by thanking Admiral Richardson and Alyssa for being with me on this panel. And of course, thank you to Rich for doing this. One has to see India's role in the Indo-Pacific in the larger context of the concurrent rise of China and India and the gradual shift in power from what was the old Anglo-Saxon space to the Asian space. Indians genuinely believe that their time has come, but it is that coming is occurring in a context where there is a large, almost a superpower state on their doorsteps for the first time in their 5,000-year-old history. This has never been true in Indian history before, where they've had to deal with a major power with whom they have a rivalrous relationship so close to their borders. And so the challenge for India is how do they preserve the opportunities for cooperation with China? Because they don't want to risk a war. They don't want to risk manic competition that could undermine their desire for long-term economic growth with the realities that competition between these two countries is not going to go away. And so India has to walk a tightrope between protecting its interests in the context of competition with China while also preserving whatever opportunities there are for cooperation. And the United States looms very large in the context of the calculus. And increasingly now, Pacific Asia, because the Indians have come to the recognition that they will not be able to deal with the China challenge unilaterally or alone. And so the partnership with the United States and the partnership particularly with other Asian powers like Japan, Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, even Australia, 
will become critical to this calculus. So we are actually at the early stages of watching the evolution of India's gradual integration into the Indo-Pacific. It's a story whose last chapter has not been written, but we have to watch the space. I, I want to just ask you before going to you, Alyssa, just one last thing on that, Ashley. I was struck in multilateral meetings that I had with Indian friends just a few years ago that as much as we tried to talk to them and engage them on Pacific and Asian-related issues, it was not a natural process. They were still more comfortable in a regional setting that really is not about the dynamism of East Asia, but much more about some of these intractable problems of South Asia. Is that going to change over time in your view? It is going to change over time for sure. And you begin to see India already engaging with the broader Indo-Pacific space at the geopolitical level, at the military level. But India's biggest weakness in this engagement is its economic trajectory. India is still not an outward-looking nation economically, whereas the rest of Pacific Asia is essentially dominated by outward-looking economies. So in addition to all the other contradictions that I identified in the Sino-Indian space, India has to cope with the reality that it is not economically integrated with Asia in a way that is necessary for its long-term success. And yet it seeks to be partners with essentially other countries that want to be even more deeply involved with India, not just geopolitically, but economically. And so until India makes the strategic decisions at home with respect to accelerating economic openness, it's going to be handicapped with respect to its alliance building strategies beyond the subcontinent. Alyssa, thank you. I just want folks to know how much we appreciate Alyssa joining us today. She is uh, right after this getting on a, a train to head to India for uh, important sessions to really discuss India's role in the world. And I'd also like to point out that an enormous tree fell near her house and she it's wasn't true. able to get there. And and you notice how well run this conference is. Rich sent part of our team at the Asia Group with chainsaws. They cut the tree. This is a true story. Cut the tree, and she's here. So great great that you're able to join us. Um, thank you, so, Rich. So thanks, Rich, for that. So Alyssa, just help us. So your book really describes how India is starting to think about the world. Uh, maybe for this group, help us understand India's always had a complex relationship with the United States, complex views about the United States. How are those views evolving? Well, I think Ashley put this exactly right, that India sees the United States as a power that can be uniquely helpful to uh, supporting India realize its own ambitions in the world. So uh, we are playing a helpful role to India's ambitions, India's own ambitions. And sometimes we have some challenges because India's ambitions are not always the same as what the United States would like to see India do. We have some geographic differences, even on the definition of what constitutes the Indo-Pacific region. You hear this all the time, that the United States is far more interested in partnering or seeking Indian partnership across the more Pacific Ocean side of this large space. And India would like to see a deeper engagement and cooperation with more attention to the Indian Ocean part of this space. But India does seek to increase its capacity 
You see the uh, number of exercises with the United States continues to increase very successfully. The defense the strategic relationship between India and the United States, I would say, is probably the biggest success story uh, bilaterally of the last decade. It really has continued to gain ground. We now have trilateral, quadrilateral consultations, strategic consultations. This is a big deal. You couldn't have imagined it 25 years ago. But what does India seek in this region? Uh, It seeks primacy in the Indian Ocean. It seeks to be its region's major power. So that is where we can play a role helping India with its capacity. I'd just like to note one thing that, that Ashley referred to is the economic undergirding of this rise in this story. There was a recent news report, I think it was just last week, if I'm not mistaken, about the Navy seeing a a drop in its budget. Uh, To the extent that India doesn't attain those high rates of economic growth that it needs to power its modernization and its ability to build this blue water Navy, uh, it's going to fall short of its own ambitions uh, in trying to attain and preserve that, that primacy that it seeks in the region. That's a nice segue. Admiral, so in your capacity, you dealt primarily with the Indian Navy. Bureaucratically, of course, there's no bureaucratic politics in our our military organizations. But as you look at uh, India, are there, do you discern subtle competitions about who wants to work more with the United States, what the particular focus are in terms of investments, and what does that mean for the trajectory of the U.S.-India relationship? Well, just to leverage off of uh, what Alyssa said, there there has been, I think, overall tremendous progress made. And it's not just, uh, it's not only exercises which have grown more in number, but also in complexity. The inclusion of the Japanese and the Malabar exercise, which is a huge undertaking. We participated with a carrier strike group and and a nuclear submarine just recently. So those types of exercises are meaningful. But uh, even perhaps more meaningful, we've got technological agreements now in the defense sector, sort of two giant bureaucracies meeting each other. Uh, something will happen that's good. But with the you know, aircraft carrier and uh, aircraft production, consistent with the made in India concept there uh, in terms of the economic dimension, there's also been important communication and information sharing agreements, logistics uh, agreements. And so these are agreements you know, that have been a long time coming. We've been working hard to achieve them and, and have recently done so. With respect to just uh, the role of the Indian Navy, you know, my understanding is that, uh, and I think uh, we've had a couple of conversations in terms of the hierarchy of the services, you know, it wouldn't break in the top half right now, which is ironic given kind of their ambitions to grow into that Indian Ocean region. I think something's going to have to change there. I think they've got some really great strategic thinkers in their Navy leadership. And so that would be a natural uh, growth area for them as well. And um, tremendous uh, competition between the services, you know. And uh, so this is just, you know, not, not helpful to them in terms of realizing that ambition to become a regional leader. So they've, I think they've got to just kind of think a little bit more as a, just in the defense sector alone as a, as a team there. Interesting. So, Ashley, the, this uh, conference that is really posited on the beginning of presidential engagement with India, and I love the fact that this was the first use of the, 
modern Air Force One, this first trip to India. So, you know, you associate with various presidents different periods of engagement with India, the Galbraith period with um, with Kennedy and the, the, you know, interesting, you know, kind of relationships that Clinton had in the 1990s, obviously your role with, with President Bush, and then more recently, I know it's earlier, we're talking with Susan Eisner, and it's often hard to make judgments when we're either so close or right in the midst of uh, engagements. But give us a sense, carefully, of how you think the uh, Indian government is engaging uh, President Trump and his team. It's a challenging, it's a challenging time for this relationship to flourish. But I think it's a tribute to the prime minister that he has broken the code. And that's not always, uh, that's not always easy to do. But he's broken the code in terms of making time to engage the president personally and directly. Now, I think that is necessary, but over the long arc, it is still insufficient. Because unless the United States recovers from its amnesia about why the world is important to our interests, Indian investments in President Trump will not be sufficient to sustain the partnership in a way that we have for the last 20 years. So I think leadership engagement is critical, but it will not carry us over the threshold. So again, this is something whose end process we haven't quite yet seen. Interesting. I will say one of the things I hear in Northeast Asia and also in India is that President Trump has invested an enormous amount of time in some of these personal relationships. And I hope that is something that we will take um, going forward in any circumstances. Alyssa, I thought it might be useful to tell the group a little bit. So in your engagement in India, India has decided to host a gathering that really signifies its interest in certain kinds of multilateral engagement. I thought they'd be interested perhaps as a final segue into our next session about what you're about to do in the next couple of days. Sure. Well, in addition to deepening India's engagement with the United States in conversations about East Asia, the Indo-Pacific, our exercises, our defense partnership, and our strategic conversations Uh, from within the State Department, we're now seeing from India more of a push to become a platform, a a convening country for conversations about the strategic future of the Indo-Pacific region. So this weekend, um, RIS will be convening a conference called the Delhi Dialogue, and it's ministerial level now. And they're bringing in people from East Asia, Southeast Asia, the United States, to talk about the Indo-Pacific emerging architectures, challenges. What does this all mean? So I think that's this is kind of a new role now. I mean, it's not new yesterday, but we're seeing this as an emerging strategic leadership role on the world stage where India is saying, we want to host, 
We want to drive discussion on what it means to have this region, who should be engaged, how should we engage, what are the priorities, are these military strategic dominant priorities, do economic concerns matter in this landscape, where does the geography begin and end? I, I think India is interested now in, in playing a role driving all those questions. Great. Thanks, Liz. All right, we're, we're in our lightning round. I'm getting notes about how many seconds I have left. So we're going to ask one last question uh, and just get your sense, just starting with this, Admiral. So if you had to just make a, just a quick assessment. So over the next five years, you get three options. The U.S.-India relationship is going to trend dramatically upward. We're going to see real improvements across the board, economic, military, people to people. Steady she goes, second option, or third, we're going to start to see some real issues on trade and differences around Iran and Russia. You have those three choices, right? Really up, steady she goes, or problems on the horizon. Yeah, Which I'm do you between, choose? I'm between A and B. You know, I think that there's tremendous uh, opportunity here. It'll depend on how we play those cards and all of that. But, uh, you know, I would hope that uh, we'd achieve some better than steady as she goes uh, progress. Where are you, Ashley? Same place that Admiral Richardson is for two reasons. One, it's not clear what India's own trajectory will be over the next five years. And that'll be a critical, that'll be a critical variable, both on the economic side as well as its own political evolution. And it's also not clear where we will be over the next five years, depending on what happens in elections next year and so on and so forth. So the intersection of these two variables will really determine the trajectory of this bilateral relationship. Alyssa, you have the second to last word. I, I endorse this view. I also would like to note that I continue to worry about the possibility that we'll all wake up one day and there will be a new tweet about new tariffs or something that will create more speed bumps. There is a, 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 a surprise factor that nobody quite knows how to evaluate. We do have a very bumpy uh, economic dialogue with India. It's taking years now to reach what appears to be a kind of modest agreement on as far as the press accounts tell it, uh, something like stents and walnuts. I mean, it's a very modest set of products in this conversation, um, and it is taking a very long time. But I, I do think that that suggests that there's the possibility for speed bumps there. But I, I have been impressed with the degree to which the strategic and defense relationship continues to expand. And the correct answer, it's all three. It's going <laughs> to trend dramatically forward. Station goes and huge problems. Uh, we're going to have walnuts for lunch, and before, uh, but first we're going to hear from the ambassador, the assistant secretary. Please join me in thanking a wonderful panel today. Thanks for tuning in for this Tea Leaves episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you.